So uh, what's heaven going to be like? Is that a question you ponder much? I haven't pondered it all that much myself, but uh, uh, you know, the Bible has some clues about what it's going to look like. Revelation describes some of its dimensions, in fact. Uh, but uh, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about what we're going to do, what our lives are going to be like when we get to heaven. Uh, I actually did an Easter message, not this past Easter, but a year ago, uh, Easter 2007. Um, in fact, it was titled, Feels Like Heaven. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I think I borrowed a, a, a song title from The Cure uh, to, for that message. And the reason I mention that is, is it's always available on our website to go back and look at uh, the, the sermon slides, the, um, the verses, and, and the slides that, uh, from old sermons. And so if you wanted to check that one out to see some of the speculation, uh, but a lot of it is speculation, um, there's just not a whole lot of detailed information in the scriptures about what our lives in heaven are going to look like. Yeah, I was thinking about something this week <clears throat> as I was pondering this parable. Do you think that our lives will be equal in heaven? Equality is a, um, a quality of opportunity, at least, if not a con- of condition, is a highly prized value in our society. Do you think we'll be, you think we'll enjoy equality in heaven? And, and my answer is I don't think so. I think we'll be equally delighted to be there. And, uh, and yet, I don't think we will all enjoy the same conditions there. Um, in fact, <clears throat> this is one of those places where I think the, the teachings of Jesus are unmistakable because it shows up again and again. Jesus unmistakably teaches that you can improve your situation in heaven by the decisions and actions you make here on earth before you get there. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about salvation by works. The Bible's equally plain. We're saved only one way, well, only one way by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but when does your citizenship in heaven begin? Do you become a citizen of heaven after you die when you get there? Or do you become a citizen of heaven when you become a believer? That's the second answer. When you become a believer, the Bible says plainly, our citizenship is in heaven. And yet we live the rest of our lives here, and then we move to heaven. And it's the the time between salvation and our death or graduation to heaven that I think has a a large, plays a large part in determining what heaven's going to be like for you and for me. Jesus says this thing repeatedly. One of the things that will affect your standing in heaven is the way you handle money here on earth. Now, this part's kind of funny and a little uncomfortable to me. I think I've spoken more on money in the last month than I have in the last five years that we've been a church. And it's kind of curious. uh, I think it's a little funny to me. How did I get there? Was it from, you know, we've been working on the budget. Was it from looking at the budget and thinking, oh, I've got to squeeze more money out of these people. I'm going to start doing messages on money. Um, that's not how we got there. How did I get to messages on money? I decided last, last semester that I wanted to do a series on parables. And I wanted to do a series on the parables of Jesus. So what would Jesus teach? Evidently, he'd teach a lot about money. Because uh, uh, it seems like the last three weeks have all been, uh, the last three parables I've taught about have all had something to do about that. And so you know, sometimes in the, <clears throat> in an attempt to be, sort of meet the needs of our society or swim upstream from the norm or what people expect of churches, we're tempted to swing too far the other way. You know, we want to be an accessible church. We want to be a seeker-friendly church, but we don't want to be a church 
that denies its congregation the plain truths of Scripture. And uh, the way we handle money, according to Jesus, is uh, demonstrates where our heart is. And so let's see what Jesus had to say about it. Um, first question I want to ask you today is, what's money for? Is it a means to exercise power and influence? It surely can be. I think some of us have used it that way or been tempted to. <clears throat> is it a tool of self-indulgence? Well, obviously it is here and now today, and there's nothing new under the sun. It's always been a tool of self-indulgence. Is it a resource to serve others? Obviously, that's the more spiritual answer. Um, and yet, we can assent to that, and we can say, oh, yeah, I like number three. That's what I want to be. And yet, look at our lives. You know, let's ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light on our lives. Is that how we use our money? Or another way to ask the same question is this. Who are you in relation to your money? How do you relate to your money? Are you its servant? Nobody wants to admit to that. And yet, you know, how many of us, if not the money itself, the things it can buy, you know, we've got to work harder, we've got to take an extra job, we've got to go in early, we've got to stay up late, we've got we to do this and that. Why? So we can have more stuff. Are you its master? I think many people try to be the master of their money. Think, well, it doesn't control me, I control it. And I use it as a tool to accomplish my purposes. But this is, the, uh, uh, this is one of the key points of today's message, and I think the, one of the key points of the teachings of Jesus here today. Number two is not an option. As much as you might think you want to be the master of your money, it's just not going to be a choice. Or are you its steward? Obviously, that's the right answer. Um, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So that means the earth belongs to God and everything in it. And if all of it belongs to him, how much of it belongs to me? Well, none of it. And yet I get to manage it. He gives me some of it to manage. And one day I'm going to stand before Jesus. He's going to say, yeah, I entrusted you with some of my money. What would you do with it? And I think about some of the sheepish looks on our faces when we answer. I don't, want to partic I don't want to pick on your particular indulgence. But I can just picture people saying, I enlarged my pool. Uh, or, yeah, I got a, got a nice boat. And I love boats. I love pools. I love all those things. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. And yet I feel like some of us in that day are going to have kind of sheepish answers. Um, and wouldn't it be great to say, well, you know, I recognized it was your money. I used it as a resource to serve others. And so that's what, that's what, that's what I believe the Holy Spirit's calling us to today. So we're about two-thirds of our way through the series on parables. If you've been here, you've learned some tools already. Um, we're going to do about five more weeks on parables, and then we'll move on to another series. Look for the surprise. This one is a shocking parable. It seems like, it seems like the good guy in the parable is... A, a, a guy with an integrity problem. <clears throat> Look for the main idea of the story. This is one parable I think it's especially important that we try not to press too hard to attach theological significance to every detail. Jesus had one main idea. This isn't a parable about how to be a good employee. This is a parable about how to plan for the future. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Got a really bizarre good guy in this parable. And then think about the audience. Um, Think about the people who are listening to Jesus and what they would have expected. We've seen parables where the audiences um, before were the Pharisees, a big group of Pharisees, or maybe an individual Pharisee or teacher of the law. 
We've seen parables where Jesus spoke to a whole crowd or one just to Peter, his disciple. This one was spoken, it says, to his disciples. So this is a story for believers. Um, I, don't, I think if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this one's not going to make as much sense. There's a reason that he told this to his disciples and didn't tell it to the larger crowd. Let's go back and take a look at it. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, so he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Notice it says he was accused. It doesn't say for sure that he was guilty, and we're not sure if the accusation was that he was careless or that he was dishonest. He might have frittered away his master's money just being foolish and stupid, or he might have frittered away his master's money for his own gain. Uh, I tend to think it was the latter, that he was dishonest, but uh, I, I can't be too dogmatic about that. That's just what I believe about it uh, because of some of the things we're going to read later. <clears throat> Either way, the manager or the owner, the rich guy, has not been served well by having this guy as his manager, so he's out. He's fired. But notice what a funny way he fires him. He fires him and then gives him this final assignment, give an account. Take some time to tidy up your affairs. And, and think about this in the workplace. I know we got engineers in the room who work for companies who do government contracts. If you, were, if you or one of your coworkers was dismissed for an integrity problem, would you have a significant amount of time to uh, get your affairs in order? I, I picture it being get those pictures off the count, off your cubicle now, and security will escort you to the door, right? Uh, you don't get time to, to, to tidy up your affairs, especially if it's an integrity problem, right? <clears throat> so this guy, though, has a window of opportunity to make some plans for the future, and that's what this parable is about. He seizes this window of opportunity. And how's this apply to you and me? We have a window of opportunity to, that will affect our eternal future, and that's the rest of your life. The rest of your life is the window of opportunity, and we're going to, we, if we learn the lessons of this parable, we're going to use that window to affect our eternal destiny. Again, not salvation, but, but our standing in heaven. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So his options are limited. He can't go back to doing manual labor. He's too proud to beg. But he comes up with a plan, and the plan is really the confusing part of the parable. What's going on here? Let's look at the next three verses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He's at, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Verse 7, then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So one guy got a 50% break on his bill. The other one got a 20% break on his bill. Now, smarter guys than me have debated for centuries what happened here. And they don't all agree. There, I, I, and I can't tell you for sure this is what I know happened. I can tell you the prevailing theories, and I can tell you which one seems to make the most sense to me, um, and that's what I'm going to do. And, and in fact, it's not really important that we get this detail right in order to understand the applications of the parable, but it's what makes it a difficult parable to understand, so I'd like to talk about that for a minute. First of all, I think there are things that the first century hearer of Jesus would have known about the business dealings of that day that you and I just don't grasp. And, and that's why there are unspoken parts in this parable where Jesus told this story and they were able to connect some dots that aren't totally clear to us. I'll try to give an example of that. If I told you I was going to buy a house, 
today, in the world we live in today, you know that there are a whole lot of other things I'd have to do. Somebody would have to appraise the house. I'd have to somehow get a survey. There'd be title insurance. I'd have to apply for a mortgage. I'd have to, you know, somehow qualify for financing. There'd be a whole lot of things along the way, meet with a realtor, that kind of stuff, and a, and a lawyer and close the, the sale. That I wouldn't have to say, if I told you I was going to buy a house, you would know just, just from that that I got several weeks or months of paperwork and, and hassle to deal with before I move, right? And so my point is that I think there's some unspoken parts of what's going on in the business world of the first century that the listeners to Jesus would have understood that aren't totally clear to us. Well, the face value possibility, and the one that I've thought for years has hap- to happen here, is the guy, the dishonest manager, was not only dishonest in a way that got him fired, but was dishonest after he got fired. That what he did here, and it looks like it, this is the easiest interpretation, looks like he called in some of the debtors and stole from his master to cut their bill to just sort of ingratiate himself to them so they would treat him nicer when he, got fi- when he, when he lost his job. And that seems like the easiest interpretation, but I'm not exactly sure that's right. Um, the, the Exodus passage that I read at the beginning of the service forbade Jews to charge interest to Jews. And that doesn't mean the realities of the business world even back then meant that people weren't willing to loan money if they didn't make anything off of it. But they wouldn't write, like in our contracts today, if you borrow money, it's very clearly stated how much of that's interest and how much of that's principal, and, and, and you can see that plainly. And business contracts between Jewish people of the first century, the, the interest wouldn't have been written out. It would have been kind of rolled in as all part of one package. So one of the theories is that what the, the manager did, the shrewd guy, was to cut the interest charges, which technically wouldn't have been illegal or it wouldn't have been something the owner, the rich guy, could have gotten back at him for because, like, when you steal from a thief, you know, he's not going to report you to the authorities. Um, and, and if it was illegal for the, the owner to charge interest, then getting that off the bill isn't something that the owner could, could get relief for before the judicial system. So maybe he just cut the owner out of his interest uh, in order to ingratiate himself to the debtors. But the third theory is the one I like the best. A manager who was managing somebody else's property would have been entitled to a commission, his own income, for any kind of business deal. And it's possible, you'd have to read this into the text because it doesn't say, but it's possible that what the manager did was cut out his own commission the part that he would have been entitled to recover when the, when the uh, debt was paid back because he's not going to be around to recover it. So maybe he's given up his own part of the deal in advance, again, same purpose, to ingratiate himself to the debtors so that now they've saved some money on what they have to pay back and maybe they'll be nice to me when I'm out of a job. So that's, that one feels a little better to me because then you don't, at the end, see Jesus patting this guy on the back for dishonesty. You pat him on the back for, for giving up his own money. Uh, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not exactly sure that that's the right interpretation. Uh, it doesn't really matter all that much. The application that Jesus makes would work really no matter what, what you believe about how the guy did it. <clears throat> Let's finish the parable. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Let's take a look at this word shrewd, uh, or shrewdly. In the last parable I taught about, God called a man a fool. Now, it's obvious we don't want to be called that, especially back then, because fool back then is even worse than it is now. 
Fool today means stupid. Back then it meant stupid and evil. Um, so it had a little extra quality of badness to it. But shrewd, do you want to be called shrewd? On one hand, shrewd kind of means clever. But on the other hand, isn't there sort of this connotation of almost going to any lengths, even underhanded lengths, in order to accomplish your purposes? And so, like, like in, in the, the deal we made with the landlord to re-up on this place, were we shrewd with the landlord? Was the landlord shrewd with us? I don't know. Um, time will tell. Um, but uh, sometimes we're not sure we consider that to, to be a compliment. But in this context, it totally is. Here's what the word means. It means to act with foresight. Or in more detail, it means to act with cleverness and judgment in the present to position oneself for the future. Sometimes in the New Testament, this Aramaic word that's translated shrewd here is translated as wise. And you're probably more familiar with seeing this word translated as wise because who was shrewd according to Jesus in the New Testament? Well, this guy was shrewd, this manager. Who else was shrewd? The man who built his house upon the rock. We call him the wise man, but it's the same word. Uh, or do you remember the story about the ten virgins? I think we might get to this parable later. Who Five of them fill their lamp because they're waiting for the bridegroom and they're ready, and the other five don't fill their lamps and they're not ready. They're considered wise or shrewd. Whenever I talk about the man who built his house upon the rock, I like to, to bring home an application from that. So this is like a little bonus, sermon within a sermon. This won't cost you any extra. You don't have to go back to the offering basket. Uh, just enjoy the extra little parenthetical sermonette here. Um, you remember this story, wise man built his house upon the rock, foolish man built his house upon the sand, and when the rains came, the house upon the rock stood, the house upon the sand fell down. What's the difference between those two guys? I know you're gonna, your first answer is where they built their house, and then what happened after the rain, but, but Jesus used this story as a parable to illustrate a spiritual principle. Can anybody remember spiritually the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? Not really. So, ding, 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 that's the answer. Uh, let's read it. Um, Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the one who hears and doesn't put them into practice is like the foolish man. So that's you and me. We have the opportunity to decide for ourselves whether we're going to be wise or foolish. Because here we are now listening to a story of Jesus and his application and our response to that determines our wise or foolish futures. Let's go back to Luke. The cool thing about this parable is as confusing as it is, Jesus offered his own commentary. He didn't start to stop talking at the end of the story. He gave us a little sermon at the end of the parable to explain the application. And he really gave us three main ideas to chew on. And frankly, I wouldn't have gotten this. Um, the things that Jesus teaches us based on this parable aren't applications that I would have understood myself. Maybe one of them, but the others, the others seem um, like deeper insights than I would have gathered on my own. So I'm thankful that we've got Jesus. You know, I read several commentaries, commentators getting ready for these messages, but here we have the words of Jesus describing his own story, and it's his story, and his application is going to be the one I really want to apply to my life. Verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Okay, who are the people of the light? Well, they're the disciples that Jesus are talking to. It's you and me. Now, when we get to heaven, we're going to be welcomed by God, but how many others are going to be there? 
Now, this part's not scriptural. This is my imagination. But I sort of picture Jesus walking us around, introducing us to people. Yeah, have, you, have you met my friend Rick? Every week he prayed for the members of his congregation. And then there are going to be some people who say, yeah, I know him. He prayed for me. He's going to be walking us around. Have you met my friend Stephanie? Yeah, she went, got up early on a Saturday morning, went down to the nursing home, sang to those people. And there's going to be some old guy saying, he'll look different, saying, yeah, I couldn't even say thanks to her back then. But, but, but I, remember her too. I remember her doing that. We're going to be welcomed not only by, by the Lord, but by people who we've loved and served here on earth. And I just think, I just picture this pretty cool reunion where, uh, uh, where there are people there who we've invested our lives in who are going to be there to help us celebrate. This phrase, when it is gone, so that when, when the worldly wealth is gone, we'll be welcomed to eternal dwellings. What that, that, that when it is gone literally means when it fails. Let's talk about that for a minute. When does worldly wealth fail you? Is it when you lose it? Is it when you go into debt? Is it when you don't have enough? No, worldly wealth fails you when you die because then you don't have it anymore. Um, in fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. That's when the worldly wealth fails us because we, we're going to stand before Jesus without any of that stuff but with a record of what we've done. So what's this parable show us? Jesus drew three conclusions. And let's take a look and see what the first one is. Shrewdness with money can achieve eternal goals. There are going to be three of these. This is number one. Let's get, get to the second one. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever was, is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So if you have wealth and if you have possessions, and everybody has some, is some more than others, right? It's a test of character. What you do with your wealth, what you do with your possessions is a test of character. And here's the, here's the challenging part. It's a test you're taking right now. So it's okay to ask yourself, how are you doing? How, how am I doing at this test? The Duke of Wellington, um, maybe you've heard stories about him. He's the guy that defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Several people wrote biographies because he's a great hero in English history. One of his later biographers did a better job than earlier biographers, and he knew why. Here's what he said. I had an advantage over earlier biographers. I found an old account ledger that showed how the Duke spent his money. It was a far better clue to what he thought was really important than the reading of his letters or speeches. This reminds me of an old quote by Peter Lord. Every time I talk about this, I, I quote Peter Lord, so indulge me if, if, if he's one of my favorite guys to quote. Uh, a couple of his books were just pivotal in my development as a disciple, and so that's why I, I, I can't get those out of my head. But every time I, I, I teach about this, I, I, there are new people in the room, so I feel like I should say it again. Peter Lord said, you want to know how somebody really believes, or if I can tell you how somebody really believes by looking at his checkbook and looking at his calendar. Because the way he spends his time and the way he spends his money shows what he really believes. All the rest is just religious talk. And that's Peter Lord's uh, quote. And I remember chewing on that thing 15 years ago and, and chewing on it ever since, pretty much. So the second application of Jesus is that stewardship of money has eternal consequences. Let's find the third, verse 12. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, the reason money is capitalized there with a capital M is in the King James, it was mammon. It was sort of this personified pagan god of wealth. Um, I've been reading a book about parables by a guy named Gary Inrig, and it's actually sort of the framework for this series. His chapters tell me which parable I'm going to do next. Uh, when I did the series on Psalms, like last year, I guess it was, it, I spent an embarrassing amount of time each week deciding which Psalm to do next. And so it helps me to have sort of a framework so at least I know where I'm going next. And so Gary Inrig has helped me with that. But I loved what he had to say about this application. He says, a choice is inescapable. We can have only one master. Jesus wants us to understand that we do not have the option of being masters of mammon. We can be stewards of it or we can be servants of it, but those are our only options. Either God owns our wealth or it owns us. And that's, that's the, the, the challenging part of this message. I think we want to master our money and put it to work for us, but unless my money and me are both servants of God. My attempt to master my money will backfire and I'll eventually find myself serving it. So the third conclusion Jesus drew from this is that stewardship of money prevents bondage to money. It's probably a good time for me to give a plug for our Crown Ministries class. Um, this is an easy concept to assent to, but it's a challenging concept to practice in our daily lives. It's easy to say, Okay, yeah, I believe that. But how do I live that out day by day? And uh, 10 or 12 of us took a class last summer uh, that took 12 weeks. It was a workshop, and it was very valuable, very helpful. In fact, I would say uh, the people who are in the room who took the class, I think our most common review was, I wish we'd have done this 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and so um, as a veteran of the class, I would encourage you to, uh, to consider it. Morris and Diane will be leading the next the next version of this class and pretty much by popular demand. And so I think a few people have said we'd like to take the class. It's limited to 10 or 12. So I think when they get to 10, it's time to start. And so if you'd like to sign up for the class, just contact Morris or Diane and let them know. But I would strongly recommend it. Let's finish the story. Verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. That's a pretty strong word, detestable. It means it's an abomination before God. Now, the scary thing about this to me is, think about the world we live in. And again, it's the world we live in. It's the world Jesus lived in. Our culture loves money. And yet self-indulgent greed, the self-indulgent greed, I think, that characterizes our age is detestable before God. So let's go back to the earlier question. Are you related to, how are you related to your money? Are you its servant? Are you its master? Not an option. Or are you its steward? Now, that reminds me of a story. My students have heard this phrase over and over again, and they've learned to kind of cringe. Some of you are, I don't know, maybe they, they like the stories. But uh, I want to finish the message today with a story. There was a man who was shipwrecked on a lonely, unknown island but he found out he wasn't alone. There was a large tribe of people who lived there, and he was surprised to find that they treated him very well. In fact, they placed him on a throne and catered to his every desire. He was delighted by this, but perplexed at the same time. You know, why such royal treatment from this tribe that didn't know him at all? And as he 
learned the language, he discovered that this tribe had a very strange custom, that they would choose a man and make him king for a year. But then when the year was up, they would transport him to a nearby deserted island and abandon him there. So his delight now turned to distress as he realized he's going to be all alone on this other island in just a few months. But then he seized upon a plan, a shrewd plan. Over the next months, he sent members of the tribe, remember he's the king, he sent members of the tribe to the other island to clear the land, to plant crops. He had them build him a beautiful home and furnish it. He even sent some of his good friends to live there and wait for him. So when his time came, he was sent to a place that had been carefully prepared and full of his friends delighted to receive him. Now you and I aren't going to go to a deserted island. We're going to go to our, our father's home. Yet the investments we make here will be waiting for us there. And the investments we make here <laughs> will be totally lost. Let's pray. God help us with this. It's, it's sometimes hard to imagine our future in heaven, but it's really easy to see the money right in front of us sometimes slipping through our fingers and feeling like it's not enough. Lord, help us to live our lives and manage our affairs in a way that will advance your goals. Help us to, to pursue your kingdom and its righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.